there's just something about the Word of God that I can't put my finger on. It is so profound. David said, it's your word that makes me wiser than my teachers. I love that. David said, how can a young man keep his ways pure? By meditating on your word. James, not this James, the other James. James said, it's the ingrafted word that's able to save your soul. Come on, the word is so vital for us that the apostle Paul writes to his spiritual son, Timothy, and he says, nourish yourselves upon the scriptures that are able to give you the wisdom that lead to salvation. Who knows, that's the kind of wisdom that I want. I love anecdotes, I love stories, I love examples, I love all those different ways that preachers help us to understand the word, but I would take the word of God over all of that. Can anybody else say amen in this place? Come on, Jeremiah saw his word, and he ate it. He didn't even just read it, it was like, this is so good, I'm going to eat it. I don't know if there's any people that are full on his word today, amen? Amen. So, so I've had a real privilege, really, to be able to spend about three or four days set aside studying this concept of the Nazarite. And I've done Nazarite vows before. I've been a part of the Nazarite school and taught on it and stuff. And I've got to tell you, the thing about the word, it's like a woman. As soon as you think you know it and you got her sorted and you understand everything about her, there's a whole new angle. Amen. I'm not saying that against women. Women, no, you, you don't fully understand us, right? There's more to me than meets the eye. Every time you think you've got a concept down in the Bible, I tell you what, there's a deeper revelation. And if you honor the word of God, if you hunger after God, if you invite the Holy Spirit, can I just, this is nothing to do with the word. Can I just give you a tip that will change your life? Every time you open up the Bible, start with this one sentence. Holy Spirit, teach me something I've not seen before. That will change your life. I'm not just saying that's not a gimmick. That will change your life. If you say it with your head and your heart, it will change your life. And I've been sucked deep in the word for a few days, and there are so many things about Nazarites that I did not see. And some of the stuff you don't even see until you try and root down and understand some of the Hebrew words and the Greek words. So I'm so delighted to be able to share to you a message that I, this is, I don't know if I've ever been more excited to preach a message. I get excited quite easily. And I get excited about the word even more easily. And I don't know I've ever been more excited to share a message. So I'm just praying for the grace of God to be able to be clear because there's just so much. And I feel like I could do a 10-part series that James is going to invite me back next time. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. So um, can we just, in honor of the word... Turn to Numbers chapter 6, verse 1. We've had a bit of a problem with the words today, so we're not able to get them up on screen. But why don't we... I'm going to read the first verse, but just almost like as a symbolic honor and almost kind of a welcoming of the Holy Spirit. Can we just stand as we read this first sentence? Numbers chapter 6 verse 1 is where God puts down into law the principle of the Nazarites that we're going to be talking to you about today. So you read along, but I'm going to say it. Numbers chapter 6 verse 1. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord. You may be seated in the presence of God. 
What is a Nazarite vow? Today, we're going to unpack some of the principles. We're going to ask how much of it transfers into the New Testament, because that's an important, important question. We're going to look at who were the real key Nazarites, the, the kind of like archetypes of the Nazarites, and what can we learn from their lives? How can we employ the principles of, our, of their lives into our lives so we can have a similar life to them? Are you excited about that? Come on, this is exciting. The word for Nazarite is the Hebrew for Nazai, N-A-Z-I-R. I can't speak Hebrew, so I'm just guessing how you pronounce it. And it literally means to be separated to the point of devotion. To separate yourself to the point of devotion. Does anybody like football in here today? It's okay, people are like, is, am I gonna confess my sins? Is it okay? You're allowed to thank you for that bold hand, I appreciate that young man. It's okay to like football. Has anyone met a devotee of football before? Like everything, first time I came to Manchester, I'd never seen people dress foot to toe with socks in Manchester United stuff. And I felt at home, I'm just gonna tell you that much. But the Nazarites are devoted in their separation. A vow literally means to make a promise to order your future. A vow is different to a fast. A vow says, Lord, at this point, this is what my future's gonna be. A vow makes you intentional about the person you're becoming. And a person who's intentional about the person that they're becoming is prepared for any storm that may try and blow them off the wind of the course that God has for them in their life. I want to ask you, how intentional are you about your life? About the principles you live by? Or is your spirituality easy come, easy go? If I feel great, whoo, man, Rebecca really hit the praise and worship today. Uh, when one day when your other worship pastor, never Rebecca, obviously, doesn't quite hit it, it's like, oh, it doesn't work for you. Or are you intentional about your spirituality? A Nazarite vow is for people that want to be intentional about their future, intentional about the person they're becoming, intentional about the ways that God can use them. But the interesting thing about the Nazarite vow is it's a type of fast. Who loves fasting in this place? Oh, we got some spiritual junkies and a lot of honest people. I like that. But you know what? There's a family of fasts. Do you know that? Not all fasts are the same. They're similar, like they're like a family, but there's a different types of fast. And it's important to understand what kind of fast the Nazarite fast is, because it's different, for example, from a Daniel fast. A lot of people get mixed up between the Nazarite vow and the Daniel fast, but they're actually very different. The Daniel fast is about not eating any pleasant thing, but we see time and again people like John the Baptist, they eat honey. Elijah ate meat. So the Nazarite, the, the Daniel fast, or Daniel diet, as some people do, that's not very spiritual. God bless them anyway, is different. There's also a, 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 what I call an Esther fast. An Esther fast is a crisis fast. Uh, everyone, we're going to die in three days, so either just have some fun, or we better get fasting and pray that God will intervene. That's an Esther fast. It's an emergency. Has anyone ever gone into an Esther fast before? It's okay. You don't have to put your hands up, but I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> There's also a repentance fast. The Day of Atonement, every year, the Jews fast. It's a repentance fast. Uh, Ahab, I think, is my favorite repentance fast because the most evil king fasted as an act of humility and repentance, and God forgave him. There's also fasting as a spiritual discipline, which the Jews used to do twice a, twice a week on average. The New Testament Jews used to do twice a week on average. But there's different fasts for different purposes that all have a different process. And if we're going to nail the Nazarite vow together, then we need to understand what's the purpose 
and what is the process? My definition of a Nazarite vow, you ready for this? You want to get your pens ready, revved up? A Nazarite vow, I'll say this twice, is a process of separation which prepares a sacred space for God to make you fruitful. A Nazarite vow is a process of separation which prepares sacred spaces for God to make you more fruitful. The process is separation. The purpose is fruitfulness. The purpose of a Nazarite vow is to create sacred spaces in your life. It sounds nice and Catholic, doesn't it? God bless the Catholics. They've got some things right. That's good. A sacred space. Sacred literally means separated for God. It's a sanctified space. It's an area in your life which is God's area. For many of you, it will be your morning devotions. I've actually got a little seat, kind of a little cushion in my room that when I go into, that's just my God time. Does anyone have anything like that? A little prayer cushion, a little area, a little place in your car, a drive that you go to. It's about creating sacred spaces that we say, Lord, this space is for you. And the incredible thing is the distinction in the New Testament, this is amazing. We don't appreciate how amazing this is. The distinction of the New Testament is by you being there, you can make any space sacred. Come, The Jews had to travel to Jerusalem. You can travel to your bedroom. That's the power of Christ. And yet, sometimes I wonder there may be more people of other religions going all the way over to places like Mecca, for example, to go to a sacred space. And as Christians, are we even willing to just travel to our bedroom to make an area? But a Nazarite vow is centered around consecrating and making holy a sacred space for God to birth something into. It is a space that invites God to move. One of, one of my favorite scriptures is 2 Corinthians 4, 7. It's encouraging for me because it says this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, clay vessels, jars of clay, some translations say. So the surpassing greatness of the power of God is not from ourselves. I want to ask you, how big is your earthen vessel? How, many, how good are you at making spaces for God to move in your life? The purpose of a Nazarite vow is to make more space for God. In fact, the very purpose of a jug or a vase is what? To be empty. That's its purpose, to empty itself out. In fact, a jug or a jar is defined by what is inside of it. Come on, this is powerful stuff. It's defined by what is inside of it. It's a wine glass, or if you're really posh, you have a champagne flute. You have a teacup. The container is defined by what was on the inside of it. And I'm here to tell you that a Nazarite vow allows you to be defined by the Spirit of God that lives and dwells on the inside of you. Come on, because it's a sacred space creator. Now, the second purpose, the second point is fruitfulness. The purpose of a Nazarite vow is to make you more fruitful. You know, one of the amazing things that jumped out when I went through all the different Nazarites and what it was about their lives, looking for connections, looking for what defined them, looking for what made them different. Do you know one thing that absolutely blew me away? Every single woman after number six that was barren and God opened up their womb, 
gave birth to a Nazarite. Every single barren womb that was open gave birth to a Nazarite. So I should say every Jewish woman. Every non-Jewish woman whose womb was barren and was opened was opened by the prayer of a Nazarite. Because a barren womb is preparation for God to impregnate with a spirit of the Nazarite. What is a barren womb? A barren womb, as we see in Hannah, who gave birth to the Nazarite Samuel, is a womb, a space that is desperate to be fruitful. A space that is not filled. A space that is ready, but without the power of God, unable to be fruitful. A barren womb is a desperation to produce something with their life. Even Hannah's husband said, surely you're just pleased with the love that I have for you. Just drink, eat, be merry, go along with life, count your blessings. But she said, no, I need to live a fruitful life. I cannot go on with my life enjoying status quo, going through the motions, not looking back on my life and saying I gave birth to something of God. And there are people in this room that the enemy has convinced you you've got a barren womb because of that mistake that you made. Because you didn't go to the right Bible school. Because you're not smart enough. Because you're not good at talking enough. Because you don't fit into the church. The enemy will produce so many lies in your mind to convince you that you are a barren Christian that will never bring out any fruit. And I'm here to speak the word of God over you. Which tells us in Galatians 6, someone's got to catch hold of this. Those that believe they're not going to be fruitful, Galatians 6 gives you a command. And it says, rejoice, barren woman, and sing. For the children of the barren will be more and more fruitful than the woman with children. Come on, that's something to take hold of. That's something, there are some scriptures you just got to keep in your back pocket to throw in the devil's face when he comes at you. And that is one of them. Nazarites are born out of the empty spaces of a barren womb. Samson's mother was barren. Samuel's mother was barren. John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, was barren. God is looking for spaces of hunger. A womb is a sanctified space that is able to hold something that is vulnerable. Where are the wounds in your life? You see, the reason why the Nazarite vow focuses on purity is not out of a religious spirit, not out of being better, but out of producing in your life a sanctified, clean womb that is able to nurture and cultivate a dream that is at its very infantile state. We all in this place, unfortunately, know of great moves of God that were not fulfilled, shall we say, because of the frailty of humanity. We all know about that, and we've all been discouraged by that at points. But I wonder how many hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe millions 
of aborted moves they were because God was looking for a womb in a person's life that was so hungry that it was willing to purify itself beyond the usual requirements. And God can say, I can trust that womb with a seed that will change nations. Nazarites are the womb of God. A Nazarite vow is the womb of God. And this is important because God requires fruitfulness for your life. You know that. He requires it. He demands it. He's actually pretty strong about it in a lot of Bible verses. Now, if you're not fruitful, he still loves you. If you're not fruitful, you're still saved. But he looks for fruit in your life. 1 Corinthians 3.13, Paul says this, Each man's work will become evident on the day of judgment, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed by fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each person's work. If any man's work which he builds remains, watch this, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved. I don't want to get to heaven just saved. I don't want to get to the pearly gates and Jesus go, you made it. Like, it was touch and go a couple times, let's be honest. We were a little bit worried. Peter and John were having bets. But you made it. We're glad you made it. And you know what? God will be glad you made it. But he wants to be able to say, well done, my good and fruitful servant. He wants to be able to, on that day, honor you like you honored him. Give to you like you gave to him. And I love the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 113. This is so easy to miss. But he said, I've planned to come to you, Romans, that I may have a harvest amongst you also. God isn't worried about you saying, oh, I couldn't possibly want to work for God for a reward. Paul's like, man, that Rome, that is a harvest field. I want to get myself down there so that I can reap some of that harvest. That's incredible. Jesus actually says in Revelation 22, 12, one of his parting things, he says, behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. One person called him the great accountant in the sky. And that is kind of what he is. He wants to reward you. And this is really important. And sometimes we don't talk about it because we're English and we can't possibly talk about things like that. It's improper. A couple of proper English people will get that. Other people are like, what are you talking about, man? But this is really important. God wants to reward you. God wants to reward you. And it's okay to work and be fruitful to receive his God-given rewards. This is so important because it's a way out of what I call the glory paradox. Every person, most people in here, I think, would have struggled with what I call the glory paradox. The glory paradox is basically this. If I mess up, it's my fault. If I do something good, to God be the glory. So pretty much it's lose-lose situation for me. Come on, has anybody ever felt like that? And sometimes as Christians... Christians have a really bad self-esteem sometimes because of that very reason. Everything that's wrong in my life is my fault. Every sin I've ever done is my fault. But every good thing I've ever done is all to God to be the glory. And the way out of it is, yes, God doesn't share his glory 
but he gives you a reward. I said he gives you a reward. When you cooperate with God, you get to give him glory and he will give you an eternal reward. How hungry are you to be fruitful in your life? Because Hannah had a hunger to be fruitful in her life. I want to ask you this question in economics. There's a concept called a net contributor. A net contributor is somebody who gives out more than they take in in the economy. I want to ask you in the kingdom of God, are you a net contributor? Or are you a taking consumer? I want to ask if everybody served as much as you served. This is, this is prayer storm, so probably be good. But if everybody served as much as you served, how well would the church function? If everyone gave as much as you gave, I know people have different amounts to give, but if everyone gave to the level that you gave, would the church have any money to do anything? Let me ask you this tough question. If everybody won souls the level that you have in the last year, would the kingdom of God be advancing rapidly? How hungry are we to be fruitful in our lives? Because it's the hunger to be fruitful for God that drives us to be Nazarites. And I've got to say, going through the Nazarite process has changed my life because being more fruitful makes you sharper. I remember when I was a young man, an incredible message that someone preached about being at Gilgal. Gilgal is the famous place where the children of Israel were um, circumcised before they went into the promised land. And he talked about you have to allow God to circumcise things in your life. That process of God cutting away. And I still remember, I think the sermon was called Snip Snip. (laughs) You'd remember a sermon like that, especially if you're a man. (laughs) You'd remember that. Snip Snip. But I remember not just something happening here as I said, all right, God, cut off what needs to get cut off. Take away the fleshy part of my life so that I can be effective. I physically felt God just doing something in my life. And and from there, I couldn't do things, everything that my other Christian friends would want to do. I've got to tell you, going through the Nazarite process, when I've been doing the Nazarite vow, the prophetic has just come so much easier to me. In fact, the first time I've ever, and I'm not big on this, but first time I've ever been like, there's someone here called Michael and God is saying this and prophetic words publicly and just being like, tell Mary, mother, and I'm joking. (laughs) First time I'd done that, I was on a Nazarite vow. When I look back on my life, the first time I've stepped out in those things, and when I'm on a Nazarite vow, you know what, I see things in the Bible clearer. My mind is sharper. And the thing is, when you are sharper, your gift, your unique gift, will manifest more fruits. It's not going to be the same as mine. It's not going to be the same as James. It's not going to be the same as the person next to you. But I want to ask you, what would your life look like if it was 20% more fruitful? In the next six months, maybe you're a businessman. Maybe you're a teacher. I don't know what you're doing. What would your life look like if the God-given gifts that he's given you was 20% more fruitful? I just kind of picked that number, so I'm not guaranteeing that a Nazarite vow makes you 20% exactly. I just want to run through a couple things that are important before we get to the vow. Firstly, is it relevant for Christians? Now, this is important theologically, and sometimes, you know, when people, you're having a theological debate, and someone doesn't know how to get out of it, so they go, ah, but that's in the Old Testament, and they walk away like, boom, like they just bombed it or something. 
Now, sometimes that's right, but a lot of times it's just like, oh, I don't understand or like that verse. Old Testament. The first thing we look for to see, does something in the Old Testament transfer to the New Testament? Is there a precedent? Is there a precedent? Acts 18.18 says, after this, Paul stayed many long days, and then he took his leave with his brothers, and he set sail to Syria. With him were Priscilla and Aquila, and there he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. In the Old Testament, there are two reasons why you would have your hair cut at the end of a vow. The first one is Numbers chapter 6. The second one is Leviticus 14, if you've just recovered from leprosy. Now, we don't know for certain, but I'm going to hedge my bet that Paul was finishing a Nazarite vow. In Acts 21, 20, and in fact, the Greek structure, I don't speak Greek, but the Greek structure commentators tell me, indicates that Aquila, who's also credited as an apostle, was also doing that vow. So we have Aquila, we have Paul, and in Acts 21, 23, James says to Paul, take these four men who are under a vow so they may shave their heads. So we have in the New Testament six different people who clearly, or it definitely seems, they were doing a Nazarite vow. Now, the second thing, and this could be a whole message, but when we do this, Old Testament to New Testament, we are, we, what comes through is the principle and the purpose of the Old Testament, not the, always the practice and the punishment. Okay, so I'll give you an example with tithing. I know this is a bit of a minefield, but do whatever your pastor tells you to do. But this is my take. The pr- what is the pr- purpose of tithing? That God can advance his kingdom, okay? That the people of God will have something to sustain themselves. What's the principle? 10%. What's the practice? In the Old Testament, it's bring your meat and bring your grain and bring... Now, that's not going to work, all right? Yeah. I mean, I know we've got a friend here, Gary, who's got a cake factory, and it'd be okay maybe bring 10% of that, but that doesn't work. And also, because the scriptures say Christ became a curse for us, You're not under a curse if you don't tithe. Now, I believe you should tithe because the principle and the purpose is there. It's the same, say, with honoring your parents. What's the principle of honoring, what's the purpose of honoring your parents? You'll learn a lot more from them than you think you will. What's the principle? Don't speak back or you're going to get a smack, okay? Now, what's the punishment? You get stoned in the Old Testament. That's definitely illegal, and we're glad for it. So the principle and the purpose come through the cross... But the practice changes, and there's, no, there's often no punishment. Now, I'm not saying that God never disciplines. That's not quite true. And I'd also add to that is that when you transfer things, it's important often to be spirit-led. So therefore, when we examine the Nazarite principle, we're going to say, what is the purpose? What are the principles? How do we apply that in practice to us right now, and if you break it like Samson, God isn't going to kill you, don't worry. Okay? Now, some people should say amen for that, but you know, that's cool. And then, lastly, spirit-led. How is the spirit asking you to apply the principles? Now, I would love to spend more time on this, but I just need to rush through who the Nazarites were so that we can learn the principles from their life. And I want to do this as well, because I would encourage you to go and study this at home if you have a chance. Three, what I call archetype. Archetype is an essence, the purest type of. And they're also like a pure example. Three archetypes, for instance, Jesus is the pure example of what it means to be a Christian. We're all aspiring to that, okay? So the three main archetypes are Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. I believe John the Baptist is the pinnacle, the high point of the Nazarites. Now, I would also add to that... 
is um, Elijah. Now, I just want to quickly give you the reason for that. The reason for adding Elijah to it is the scripture say in 2 Kings 1.8 that they answered him, he was a hairy man, and they said, it's Elijah. Now, some people would think, oh, he had a hairy body. If you had such a hairy body that someone said, you're a hairy man, and they said, oh, it's James, that would be hairy. But if you're a man who had never shaved in your life, you would stick out. And in fact, I don't need to go into it, or don't have, have time to go into it, but that word hairy is the exact same word in number six. It's the exact same Hebrew word for when it described that Samson's hair was growing back. The other one that really surprised me, do you want to know who the first Nazarite was? I wouldn't have got this unless you dug into the Hebrew. Do you want to know who the first Nazarite was? Joseph. Joseph was the first Nazarite. In Genesis 49, 22, Jacob is blessing him, and he says, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine of blessing, which is, as I'll probably unpack, the fruit of a Nazarite is the vine. And it says, for the, on his head and on his brow, he has been set apart from his brothers. If you just read that in English, you'd move on. If you read it in Hebrew, that is the first time the Hebrew word for Nazarite is actually used. The very first time. And it's not the normal word for separate. It's the word for Nazarite. Also, was Joseph's mother barren? Yeah, she was barren. You know, also, another thing, Genesis chapter 41, 14. When Joseph came out of the prison before Pharaoh, when he finished the process, the painful process that he had to go through, and stood in his purpose, what was the first thing he did? Shaved his hair. That's what you do at the end of a Nazarite vow. Joseph was the prophetic example before Numbers chapter 6 of what a Nazarite was. I also just want to add quickly that Daniel seems to be a Nazarite vow taker, but he was not a lifelong Nazarite. Now, why that's important is because you cannot choose to be a lifelong Nazarite. In the same way, you can't choose to be a prophet. But you can choose to take a Nazarite vow. God will call you if you're called to be a lifelong Nazarite. But anybody can take a Nazarite vow. And so Daniel is an example of someone who took a Nazarite vow right at the beginning of his journey. The Apostle Paul is also an example of somebody who took a Nazarite vow. So now we know who they are. What are the contexts out of which they arise? The first thing, if you study these lives, is you'll see that the Nazarites arise at the point of spiritual crisis. Joseph came just before the famine hit. Samson came when the Philistines were ruling and railing over, uh, over Israel. Samuel came when Eli's sons were so wicked that they were sleeping with girls on the altar. That's like a preacher sleeping with girls during a sermon. That's how wicked and deceitful and ugly that was. John the Baptist, God had not spoken to the nation for hundreds of years. Elijah arises when God declares Ahab is the most wicked king of all of the wicked kings. The Nazarites arrive in the moment of crisis, but this is important. The Nazarites don't start taking the vow in the moment of crisis. The Nazarites 
find their calling in the crisis moment, but they spent a lifestyle preparing for the moment that God is going to call them to do something. I want to ask, when crisis hits this nation, a church, your community, your life, will you go straight for an estafast? Or will you have gone through the process of preparation so God can say, I am raising you up for this moment, for this hour. Don't be afraid of the darkness. Don't be intimidated. The second thing, there's only two main things I want to break down. The context, there was a crisis, but they were also prophetic forerunners. Matthew chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. Watch this. There is one voice calling in the, crying in the wilderness, the barren place. Make ready the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. The Nazarites, this is so important, are very distinct because they're called up to prepare a way for God to do something new and something different. It's Hannah saying, God, prepare me to give birth, not just to a son, but to a prophet. You see, Joseph was being prepared because there was a famine on the way. Samuel prepared and Joseph prepared the way for Moses to come out of Egypt. Samuel prepared the way for the distant, the, the destined, the dynasty, thank you, Lord, the dynasty of the kings to arise. Elijah prepared the way for all of the prophetic movements. All of the prophets come after Elijah as he sets that prophetic example. Daniel prepares the way for Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem. John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus. What is God wanting to prepare through you? What move is he wanting to prepare through you? You see, Nazarites don't look at their rights. They look at their responsibilities. Nazarites don't pursue pleasure. They pursue purpose. And because they pursue the purposes of God, they are willing to forego temporary pleasure. Do you have the mentality of a Nazarite? Now, I know we could spend a long time here, but you've got to go home. But I want to go through the three key elements of a vow, and then we're going to wrap up. The first thing, though, is a Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6 is that it's for a specific period of time. Now, we know from the Mishnah, which is like the Jewish rabbinical teachings, that it was expected to be 30 days. 30 days was the default Nazarite vow. But the important thing is, the longer the gestation period, the bigger the animal, the bigger it can give birth to. You know, an elephant's gestation period is 660 days. A hamster is 16 days. Who knows? A, a hamster's a little bit smaller than an elephant. The question is... How big a wound do you want to make for God to do something in your life? Now, Numbers chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, it says this, The Nazarite shall abstain from wine and strong drink, and he shall drink no vinegar, whether it's made from wine or strong drink. Nor shall he drink any grape juice or eat any fresh or dried grapes, all the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine or from the seas, even the skin. Now, the abstinence of grace on one level, and this is all I thought it was, but there's much more. 
but on one level is giving up legitimate pleasures. A Nazarite is willing to give up legitimate pleasures in order to pursue purpose. But you know what? It's also different because one of the things that was like, oh, wait a second, is John the Baptist ate honey. Samson ate honey. We even have Elisha, who was a Nazarite. He rocks up to the widow and he says, bake me a cake. So it's not just sweet things. It's very specific. That's, it's not the same as a Daniel diet. Okay? Now, why is that distinct? What's different to honey than, than wine? Well, firstly, do you know the government doesn't have a limit on how much honey you can have before you drive? You can't crash and go, you know, sorry, I just had like a whole bowl of honey. And I was like, I was seeing bumblebees everywhere. You know what I'm saying? I was like, woo, I'm walking on sunshine. But I'm telling you this in case you don't know, there is a limit on how much you can drink and drive. Why? Because drinking is a pleasure that's legitimate, but in too much quantity, it can affect your judgment. It can affect your decision making. It can affect your discernment. I want to ask you, what in your life, it's not a sin, but if you take too much of it, too much shopping therapy, too much Man United, too much Facebook, too much you name the thing in your life. Thank you. Look at this. James, hanging out with you, I'm turning into... Thanks for that encouraging word, Rebecca. I received that. What in your life is pleasant but too much can lead to not seeing clearly? Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 5.18, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. But you know what's really interesting, and I'd love to spend a lot more time if I could, but I can't, on this, is that a grape is a sign of fruitfulness. Grapes are the sign of fruitfulness. When they came back from the promised land to show how fruitful a land this is, what did they bring with them? They brought grapes. Do you know what the first thing that Noah did when the flood, total destruction on the earth, the first thing he did? planted a vineyard. I could carry on, but time after time, grapes and vineyards signify fruitfulness in your life. Fruitfulness in your life. That's why the Nazarite vow is a vow of separation to increase the fruitfulness, the vine of your life. When uh, Jesus was looking for parables about the kingdom of God being fruitful, what did he do? He had parables about winemakers or vineyard owners bringing in workers. You and me, we are the vine workers. When Jesus was sat around with his friends, he said, guys, I've only got a few words to say to you. They need to be really important. He said this. He said, I am the vine and you are the... If you abide in me, you will bear... What kind of fruit do vines have? Grapes. Jesus uses grapes as the symbol of fruitfulness. Jesus also says the father prunes the vines to make them more fruitful. That is an example of a Nazarite vow, pruning areas in your life to be more fruitful for God. You see, the grape seed can only live when the flesh around it dies. I went to find a grape seed because I want to show you one. And I went into the shops and they didn't have any grapes apart from all the stacks were, guess what, seedless grapes. And they had it on the, on the thing as if that like, meant they could charge like double the amount. And I was like, come on. And so I ate an entire, for you, sacrifice here. <laughs> Feel the love tonight. 
I ate an entire box of grapes so I could find one stingy little seed. One little seed. Can you see that? I can barely see it, so I'm impressed by your sight. That tiny little thing, seemingly insignificant, has the power, if it is placed in good, fertile soil, to produce a vine that produces lots and lots and lots of grapes that produce wine. Why this is this really one of the things that kind of couldn't work out. I was like, John the Baptist, John the Baptist could not touch that. As in, if he touched that like I just did, he'd broken his whole vow. That's how serious it was. It wasn't just don't drink wine. Do not touch anything. And I'm like, great. And John the Baptist, he prepares the way for Jesus. Well done, John the Baptist. High fives all round. Did a great job. And then Jesus, the son of God, comes and his first miracle, he turns water into wine. John the Baptist must have been like, Lord, what was, what was the point of that? <laughs> Even the Jews were like, John the Baptist, man, he fasts so hard, he must have a demon. There's no man can do that. Just excuse myself of any responsibility. That's demonic. But Jesus, they accused him of being a drunkard. That's crazy. Why? 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 Because Nazarites are preparers. The abstinence of a Nazarite is a preparation for abundance in the next generation. John the Baptist didn't even touch a grape so that Jesus could release new wine, the new spirit of God. Come on. Mark chapter 2, 21 says this, no one sows a patch of unsunken cloth. This is actually the verses just after they've accused him of being, they said, why do you not fast like John the Baptist fasts? And he says, no one sows a patch of unsunken cloth on an old garment. Otherwise the patch pulls away. So the new from the old, but no one also puts new wine into old wineskins. This, this is powerful because this is a prophetic, this is a declaration of the Nazarites. No one puts yesterday's wine, how God moved yesterday, what he did yesterday in old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst and the wine is lost. How many revivals were lost because the wineskins were not properly prepared? But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Nazarites are those who purpose themselves to create spaces of separation for God to sanctify and purify them so they can become the fresh wineskins that God pours out a new wine. Are you satisfied with the old wine? Are you satisfied with your charismatic experiences from the wonderful Toronto Blessing? Are you satisfied with reading books about Smith Wheelsworth but seeing nothing like that in your life? If you are unsatisfied with old wine and you want new wine, the Nazarite vow is the process that God takes you through because the Nazarite vow is for those who want to be a womb for new wine. Come on, I said, is there anyone in this place that you want to be a womb for new wine? Come on, you can clap. You can praise the Lord. You can give God some glory. You can show your hunger to God. You can speak to God in your heart right now and say, God, make me a womb that can carry new wine. The second thing, Numbers chapter 6, verse 5. 
all the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall pass over his head. And he shall be holy all the days until they are fulfilled. Then he shall let the locks of hair grow long. Why is this required of the Nazarites? Now, the Bible actually says, Paul says, does not even nature show you that man with long hair just doesn't work? And a woman with a shaved head doesn't work? Growing your hair as a guy and shaving your hair as a woman Nazarite, because the Bible says women can be Nazarites, is a sign of going against the culture. Is the sign of going against cultural norms. To be willing to be different. Be willing to seem unnatural. Be willing to not fit in. And this is so important. I remember I was on the... uh, Awakening tour, having a great time with these guys, and we were in Ireland, and it was going really well halfway through the service, which is a long service, by the way, if you've ever been with James. And uh, and I could see, you know, when things are like rocking, and every, and there was lots of young people, and you know, when they want to like break into God, and God, and they're all like, oh yeah, what's he doing? What's they doing? What's that cute girl that I saw earlier doing? And, and they're all just like, they want to do it, but they're just too worried, and they need someone to do it. And you could tell the spirit of God just wanted to break out and dance, and they were singing like a, a you know, I'm going to dance kind of song, and everyone's like, yeah, I'm going to dance, not even leaving the ground, just kind of going up and down. You know what I'm talking? And I just knew I had to grab like Abby or Naomi and just go down the front and dance like a fool because that's the only way I know how to dance and it's the only way I'm able to dance and I knew I had to do it and I'm like, come on, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm a, I'm a university teacher. I'm bored. But no, I said, God, I'm going to do this. And we took it. I thought, who cares what other people think? And we went down. Do you remember that, guys? And the place just rocked. And as I was down dancing, I'm not going to show you for your own sake. God spoke to me and he said, you just passed a test. I didn't even know I was going through a test. I just passed. He said, you just passed a test. It was the test of being more concerned about what God thinks about me than what people think about me. This is so important because it's the distinction between a Nazarite and a Pharisee. Do you want to know the most uncomfortable, awkward thing in my whole Nazarite study? Do you know what the New Testament Greek word for the Hebrew word Nazarite is? Pharisee. It's Pharisee. The Pharisees were meant to be the Nazarites. The Pharisees represent a generation of corrupted Nazarites who separate themselves to be better than other people, who separate themselves for prideful purposes. Jesus said, you love the seat of honor in the place. And when we do our Nazarite school of prayer, I often say this, the biggest danger over your lives, probably isn't carnality at this point, is God bringing you into pride and thinking, well, I fasted that. Why is that person drinking? How can, how, I, remember, I remember thoughts coming in my mind. I remember Sean Bowles talking about how he plays video games. And I'm like, how's this guy playing video games? Come on, you're a man. And I'm like, I mean, I'm just being honest. I'm confessing my sin, not his sin. And, 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 I'm, like, and, and I'm like, God, forgive me. He's doing far more than I am. Who am I to be like, I'm playing video games, idiot. There will be, but this is such an important principle, such an important principle. You need to write this down. If the enemy can't push you into sin, he will pull you into pride. 
Walking in God is like walking a fine line and you're like pushing the enemy. I'm not going to sin that way. I used to, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to do that. And you're like, hey, you know what? I'm doing all right. And the devil will go like, yeah, you are doing all right. You're not just doing all right. You're rocking it, man. You are like saved as can be. Come this way. And you're like, I think I will. Thank you very much. If he can't push you into sin, he'll pull you into pride. And the danger of the Nazarites is to fall into pride. Why? Watch this. A Pharisee would never grow their hair long. They would just look weird and uncomely. They're more concerned about their outward appearance than they are about their inward condition. A Nazarite, this is so important, a Nazarite seeks to be the solution. A Pharisee looks to speak the solution. If you find yourself criticizing if you find your thinking critical thoughts about other Christians, about other preachers, the enemy is trying to pull you into pride. The purpose of a Nazarite, the aim of a Nazarite, the heart of a Nazarite is not to point out a solution in today's day and age that is not tough the point of a Nazarite is to be the solution to whatever problem comes your way are you willing to grow your hair long what area do you have to be countercultural to what who in your life do you want to say hey nice haircut spiritually in an area man you really know your bible that's amazing oh thanks who is it you're looking for affirmation other than God? Who is it that God, if God said, go and do that crazy thing? You know, I know I'm kind of going over time and I've got one last point, but I just want to tell you, uh, <laughs> no, okay, I'm not. <laughs> no, 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 I can't. All right, Rebecca's giving me a mention of this man. Okay, this, <laughs> okay, but I don't know. I have a principle in my life that I'm like, I don't watch 18s and I'm not being like, you should do it too because else I'd be a bit Pharisee. So I have this thing, I don't watch 18s, because I'm like, well, if God says be as pure as children, and the world is like, you need to be an adult to watch that, I probably shouldn't be watching it. That's my principle. Now, I'm not pushing that on anyone else. But I came with my big brother, who's not a Christian. He's a very cool guy and very trendy and worldly in a, in a sense. He's, I love him. He's a great guy. I look up to him. He's my big brother. Who's got a big brother in this place? You look up to your big brother, don't you? You love him. And uh, we were going to movies, and he was like, oh, why don't we just go into this art house cinema guy, and, uh, and whatever film is the next film, we'll watch it. That sounds fun. I'm like, oh yeah, with my big bro, Shimmer Manchester, let's do that, it'll be fun. And so we go in and it's an 18. And I'm like, my brother's not a Christian either. So do you know how stupid and geeky and small? I was like, excuse me. Um, <laughs> I, I, it has come to my attention. And um, the, uh, the film is rated 18. And although I have currently passed that age in my life, I have a principle in my little Christian heart to keep myself pure from the things of the world and my eyes pure, just like Job. Do you know Job? Yes. Um, so can we watch another movie, please, big brother? I literally felt as stupid as if I was saying, has anyone been in that situation where you're like, it's not that they're nasty, they just can't, they're in a different world, they can't get why you can't do that. And I was just like, oh, Lord, I, oh, this is so embarrassing. And I did think, oh, should I just do it? And I thought, no, I'm going to stick to my principles. But the thing is, it was a French film. And I don't know if anyone's had the fortune of seeing a French film. They have different standards of nudity to us. 
And uh, he was like, oh, let's look it up. Let's just look it up on, you know, IMDb and find out what it was. Essentially, it was a gay porn film. <laughs> so I'm telling you that to tell you your principles will save you from things <laughs> that you never want to see, never want to do, never want to be. Because we would have sat down and been like, oh, there's a lot of guys in this place, isn't there? Probably Bruce Willis film. Action. That is why you need to live a principle-driven life. A principle-driven life. Okay, I think we should move on. <laughs> the third vow, Numbers 6, 6 to 8. All the days of the separation to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or his mother. All the days of his separation, he should be holy to the Lord. Which is very interesting because it's saying, don't be in relationships that are dead. The purpose of the last vow is to separate yourself, to make sacred spaces from relationships that are dead wood. Now, we did, they didn't know this medically at the time, but we know now if you hang around dead bodies, you know, that, that you will catch stuff. It will not be good for you, okay? What dead thing, dead relationship, dead group of friends needs to be cut off for a period, at least, in your life in order for the life of God to manifest in you? I think this day and age, that for me is like social media. And I don't think, and this is important, this is a vow, not necessarily a lifestyle. Because every Christian ministry has like a weird relationship with social media, don't you? We're like, guys, don't be addicted to Facebook, don't be addicted to Instagram, but while you are, like Prayer Storm. <laughs> so you got to say, well, but you're kind of like, well, while you're on it, you might as well, you know, be light, right? But I would definitely recommend for your mental health, if nothing else, every year, if you took 30 days off all social media, 30 days off news, 30 days off video games, 30 days off movies, 30 days off TV, these dead relationships that aren't life-giving, you cut them off, not to be super spiritual, not to be holy than thou, but to create sacred spaces. Come on, there's no point quitting movies if all you're going to do is play PlayStation. The point is to create sacred spaces in your life by cutting off dead relationships. I think it's also okay to just say to your friends, you know what, I'm going to be a bit more inclusive just for these next 30 days. Not going to come out to everything, not going to be around, you know, I will in 30 days, but I need to just take a time of retreating and being filled with God. Why? So that I can fill others with life. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. What do you just need to let die so that God can let something live in you. You see, the thing with this seed that God is so small, I'm struggling to pick it up. This seed of a fruitful grapevine that God wants to plant in your heart, the flesh around it, the, the, the flesh of the fruit needs to die for the seed to live. That is the principle that, nat that nature shouts at us. 
What around you needs to just die, be separated from, so that God can say that is fruitful soil to make that person even more fruitful? The la- two of the last things that the, the Nazarites did, and then we're just going to make a call for people to join a Nazarite challenge. The two of the last things is they gave an offering, lots of different offerings, actually a peace offering, a sin offering. Now, this is important because that is not something we do. Why? Jesus is our offering. Jesus is our offering. Now, I would, I'm saying this because I like to finish my Nazarite vows with communion. The reason is the Nazarite vow finishes with offerings. My Nazarite vow finishes with me coming before the cross of Jesus Christ and picking up his flesh and his blood, the offering that God made to God on my behalf so that I can come before him blameless. So I finish my vow with communion. And the last thing is they shave their head. Shaving your head stands for new beginnings. Babies are the boldest they'll probably ever be if they're a girl, I hope. Why? Boldness literally stands for new beginnings. It stands for a new birth. That's why the lepers, when they were healed, shaved their head because their skin was like baby skin. That's why Jesus said that the vine must be pruned to be fruitful. Now, the very last thing that I want to do, and then I want to, as I said, I don't even necessarily want this to be an emotional thing because guess what? In a couple of days, it doesn't matter how much I rile you up and you're like, oh, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to change the world by being a Nazareth. Oh, I'm going to be a history maker. Like in a few weeks, that's going to go. So I kind of almost want to bring it down a little bit because I want this to be a cool cold, if that's the right word, decision between you and God. That's not an emotional thing, not because I nailed it tonight, but because God is calling you to a lifestyle of taking every now and again Nazarite vows in order to cleanse your life, to prune your heart, to separate yourself and say, God, make my soul a fruitful womb. The last verse I want to read you is Amos 2.10. And God says, it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Then I raised some of your sons to be prophets, some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you didn't let the prophets prophesy. The book of Amos is a prophetic book. It's actually the first prophetic book in the Minor Prophets, historically. And he is saying, look what I've done in the past. Will I not restore you? Will I not make the way way right again? Am I not raising up Nazarites in this hour of crisis? Watch this. But you allowed a church culture that mocked consecration. That said, that's just legalistic. I'm not under the law, brother. I'm under the spirit of God. And where the spirit of God there is, there's freedom. I'm just going to enjoy my freedom. A church culture which forces the Nazarites to drink wine is a church culture that doesn't honor purity, doesn't honor consecration, mixes up the idea that God doesn't love you more, whether you're purified or consecrated, but he can use you more. And I'm saying this because I'm speaking over Nazarite, I'm sorry, over prayer storm, 
that this is a womb and a culture that will never make the Nazarites drink wine, will never look down on someone else's walk, will never look down on somebody else's consecration, will never sniff at a sacrifice be given before God, but we are going to be a people that will say, today is the day where we will prepare ourselves, consecrate yourself today, Joshua said, for tomorrow God is going to do something mighty. Thank you for tuning in to Preston Podcast. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode. For more information and teachings, go to www.preston.org.